0: All right. Um, wonderful seeing everyone today. Uh, we're just one sermon into this new series that we're starting in Ephesians, which is going to end um, eventually. <laughs> and so you can kind of imagine, um, especially because Ephesians, like all the other epistles, are letters written from a writer to a group of people. And so there's usually a form, there's usually kind of a flow, there's usually uh, a series of things that's covered in the front, uh, and then there's a series of things that's covered in the back, and, and it kind of connects the front and back together, and the flow of the letters, then, you know, what we're able to get out when we go through one week at a time, one passage at a time. And so today we're still in the very beginning where there's an introduction that is actually really, really long. Uh, Last week, Gabe covered the first two verses, but the next 12 verses after that, which will be broken up into three sermons, is actually an extended adoration, an extended doxology, or another way of putting it is it's an extended praise of God. How many of you guys know and are familiar with the four-letter acronym for prayer, ACTS? Okay, Angie, why are you so excited by that? He smiled, lifted up your leg, you <laughs> oh, were very that's happy. that's what I do. What you do? Okay. So, you know, one of the things I remember when I first learned about it was, you know, there's adoration, confession, thanksgiving, and supplication. You know what happens all the time is that people kind of do the adoration and thanksgiving at the same time. Have you ever noticed that it's kind of hard to distinguish sometimes if you don't kind of think, okay, wait, are there differences or are there attitudes or postures that's supposed to be different? Well, when you're talking about aberration, the idea is not so much, you know, thanking God specifically for all these things that he did for you, but it's, ser- it's just to praise him and to adore him for his qualities and his characteristics, things that he has done because of who he is, ways in which he has acted uh, very broadly to reflect his character and his will, Um, and his plan of salvation and his goodness. Thanksgiving tends then to be more specific, right? So you're sitting in a group, you know, when you guys are sharing about things that you're thankful for, it usually went down to things that are, you know, specific, that were, you know, kind of uh, isolated incidents or stories or particular responses and answers to prayer. So they're kind of different because one is where God is the object completely, not so much us, but then Thanksgiving is more specific of how he acted in our lives, and so as we're going into Ephesians 1, into this lengthy 12-verse passage of three sermons that we're going to do, it's going to cover the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit, but, but it's really an extended adoration, praising God simply for who He is, for His will, and for all of the real reasons for which God's people can and should give thanks. And then interestingly enough, right after this, from, starting from verse 15, then Paul actually gives thanks for the people in Ephesus, and he goes into detail about okay, I'm thankful for you for this and this and this and this, very specific. But all of that is because there's an umbrella of which he is simply adoring God and responding to God for what he has done and his will and his character and his goodness. And so, today, then, we're going to look at the first part of this three part series uh, that's going to cover the next 12 verses. And I'm hoping that at the end, when we get back together in our community groups, uh, one of the first things that you're going to be asked to do, there's only two questions that I'm asking you to respond to as you choose. But one of them would be, in light of today's passage, in light of today's sermon, what other things might you be thankful for? Okay, so that's where we're going. Let's go ahead and pray together. Uh, Father, we thank you so much for, the opportunity for us to gather here, for us to return uh, back to turf from a week of a variety of events, uh, of Journeys that we've been at, of things that we have experienced, of ways in which we've depended on you, and ways in which maybe we've depended on ourselves or others more than we should. And so, God, we come, Father, even thanking you for the brief time that we had in our groups just to reconnect and and to remember, Father, that the Christian walk is not alone, but, Father, that you always call us. And even as you saved us, uh, you moved us, Father, from one people to your people. And so, God, we thank you, Lord, that as we come back to turf, that it is people that we're coming back to. And we pray, Lord, as we go into your word, God, that your Holy Spirit would open up our hearts, open up our understanding. Father, so that as your people, we will receive it together. And as your people, we respond corporately as well as apply personally. We thank you, Father, there is so much truly to be grateful for. Not so much for the things that you can give to us, of which we can name many, but, Father, for things... That's simply because of your perfect will and your kindness and your character and your love that we could point to and we could understand what it means to be blessed, what it means to be grateful, what it means to be given in abundance. And we thank you, Lord, for being the source of all that. In Jesus' name, amen. Amen. So, verse 3 provides the heading then for the next few verses for this entire passage, because it kind of creates the broad category of what this entire 12-verse passage is all about, this doxology. What is is it all about? Where is the source of blessing? Who is the source of blessing? And and what are we supposed to be keeping our eyes on as we're considering how we can respond to God? So let me go ahead and beat this for us, starting in verse 3. Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, who has blessed us in Christ with every spiritual blessing in the heavenly places. So a lot of times when we're thinking about what we should be thankful for, how we can thank God or how we can praise God, we're kind of thinking about things and actions and answers to prayer and kind of concrete responses that we find. But before we even go there, you know, this verse takes us right away to something that needs to cover our thinking when we think about how to give thanks. And it's it's not so much that we just give thanks to God because He does stuff for us, but that we have to recognize that God, He Himself, is the source of blessing. That we have to give thanks to God just for Him. That there is no one else like Him. There is no one else that is deserving of honor and respect and praise more than God. God is blessed, not so much that God gives blessings, but he gives blessings because he's the source of all blessing and that he represents blessing. That's who he is. You know, in, in this culture that is honor and shame in this culture that has the emperor on top, God is greater than all of those figures that could put people under their feet, that he has power. Yes, he has provision. Yes, he is in control of history. Yes, but God is greater than all of those things. And so for God, he and himself, we should be giving thanks. We should be blessing God simply because God is God. Because if you can imagine, if God was not the greatest source of all things that are good, and he himself is good, then what blessings can he possibly give to people that are dependent on him? People that are looking to him. He would have nothing to offer. He would be... Somebody like Santa Claus, who is a character, who's known to give gifts, but we also know that he is a myth, the way that our culture has it. That there isn't someone with a bottomless bag of gifts for good children. It's a myth. But God is not like that. He is greater than all peoples and all resources of power. And so we need to praise him simply. Just for him. We sing this doxology every single Sunday, whether it's a new version or an older version, but it begins with praise God from whom all blessings flow. And it's because he is the source of all things that are good by virtue of who he is. So we have to begin with just acknowledging and treasuring and honoring God for his essence, for his being, for who he is. And then we are able to give thanks, and be able to recognize his blessings in ways that are helpful. Let's keep going. It says here, God and the Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. So who is God connected to? Jesus here. God then is the Father. Jesus is the Son. God is God. The Son of God is God. And so you see even the connection of Jesus being worthy of praise because he is the Son of God. Let's keep going. Every spiritual blessing in the heavenly places. Every means everything, doesn't it? So every single spiritual blessing, which means there's some that you see and there's some that you don't. There's some that you have not received yet. There are some that are still ahead of you. There's still some that are coming around a corner or coming out of a chasm of trial and struggle. But every single spiritual blessing comes from God. Not just some, not just the ones we recognize, not just the ones that we can understand, but every single spiritual blessing comes from God. Now, that aspect of spiritual, I think, is where we wrestle with. And the reason why I was kind of, you know, kind of, uh, well, not really putting you on the spot, but I wanted some response, was because if we're honest about ourselves, and to things that we usually give thanks for, like when you just gather in a group, usually without, uh, not a lot of thinking, and everyone's kind of rushing here, you gather in a group, usually, without a lot of thinking, okay, in preparation, usually the things that you're thankful for are things that, are much more immediate, much more tangible, and much more finite. In other words, they tend not to be spiritual things. So when the first two groups said God, I was like, oh, wow. Why are they so holy? Why are they so cognizant? Why are they so aware of another dimension? Because I'm telling you, if, if I'm just kind of making my way here to turf, it was raining earlier in the day, you know, maybe you know, there was some kind of fight going on at home, you know, maybe there were some struggles I had at school, I'm coming here and my immediate, you know, responses to Thanksgiving are usually going to reflect those urgent needs or those urgent points of crisis. I'm not thinking about spiritual things. I'm not praising God for things that I can't see yet. I'm usually just wanting to give thanks to God, even if I could get myself there, just for those little bits of help that he provided. And so when you look at this statement, every spiritual blessing... I think what we're confronted with is that maybe we don't even give thanks to God for those things at all. Maybe our Thanksgiving really begins and ends with just the tangibles, with what we can see on paper, with what we can plan out, with things that other people can see and measure and other people can provide or take away. We don't get to the level of spiritual blessing. And we're going to touch more on this today because he breaks down what some of these spiritual blessings are, but... We have to be honest and say that a lot of times when we're giving thanks to God, it's for provision. It's for some things that happened in our lives that worked out for us, and that's tangible as well, right? It's for some kind of promotion that we got. It's for some kind of grade that we achieved. It's for some kind of internship that we—those are all such important but yet earthly things— That when Paul says every spiritual blessing, a lot of times it just goes right by us. There's a reason why we could read a passage like this and we go, okay, that's great. That sounds poetic. You know, uh, Paul seems very, you know, uh, pious. He he seems very holy, but that's not me. So let's just keep reading here. But he wants to make the connection that the praise of God is directly connected to the greatest blessings that he can give, which are primarily spiritual. And we'll get there. He... Explains that, he defends that, he gives substance to that assertion that the spiritual blessings are what matters here. Although the earthly ones, it's always helpful and important for us to recognize. Let's keep going. So, every spiritual blessing in the heavenly places. And that's another thing, a lot of times our eyes, our sights are just so limited to this world. You know, we talk about heaven, we can say that, sure you know, there's spiritual warfare going on and all kinds of things happening and things that come from heaven and that we are going to heaven if we're in Christ. We can we can talk about all those things. But really our worries and our burdens and the things that we would respond in thanksgiving and gratitude for tend to be limited again to, you know, the 60 or 80 years that we have here. And maybe to some extent the lifespans of our descendants or our churches or our organizations that we're attached to. We're, we don't think about heaven very much. And so this whole line of... Every spiritual blessing in the heavenly places, it can really escape us. Let me share this quote with you. Uh, This week is uh, shepherds. I think Gabe mentioned that in his group sharing. And so this is a a quote from John MacArthur. Um, He talks a little bit more about what these benefits are. He says this, We are promised peace, love, grace, wisdom, eternal life, joy, victory, strength, guidance, power, mercy, forgiveness, righteousness, truth, fellowship with God, spiritual discernment, heaven, eternal riches, glory, those and every other good thing that comes from God. And I think there's just a short list. But these were the first few things that came to his mind as he was reflecting on this passage. Now, the question is, in a society of the tyranny of the urgent and of comparing with others and of wanting the things that we don't have or can't have, and having a vision that's finite, how often do we see a list like this and we actually would give God grace for it? It just seems so abstract. It just seems so, you know, you got to be extra mature, extra close to God or something. You got to, you know, go to seminary or something to really give thanks for this. But that's exactly what Paul's saying. Paul is saying these things and more like them are actually not only what you should give thanks for, but this is the reason why... God the Father is worthy to be praised. He's worthy of our obedience and our sacrifice and our giving of honor to him with our lives because of these kinds of blessings. So right off the top in verse 3, I think you see a, a few categorical contrasts, okay? So number one, every spiritual blessing versus a lot of times our eyes are set on some material blessings, Every spiritual blessing versus some material blessing. And then it speaks about in the heavenly places, while a lot of times our wants and our desires and ways in which we see God working for us or against us are just focused on things of this world, and they're earthly. So there's a contrast between some versus every, between spiritual versus material, between earthly versus heavenly, and yet this is how Paul begins, that on every single point, He wants our eyes and maybe our spirits and and our hearts to soar above beyond what we can see and experience only and think, you know what? If God is really this great, we need to be able to praise him and recognize him for so much more than what we have some control over in in our lives and in this world and in human history. There's much more that God wants to give us. That is why he's worthy of praise. And so how does... a passage breaks down is it breaks down into specific aspects by which the works of God as Trinity are stated, um, are explained. There are promises of past, present, and future being stated and reminded for the Christian, okay? And and that's the key part is that you need to be in Christ, really, for any of this to make sense. Uh, And we'll get there in in a minute. So today I'm only looking at three verses, okay? Four through six, uh, verse three kind of prior the heading of, of praising God for every spiritual blessings in heavenly places. I'm going to look at four through six, and that's God the Father. And then the next passage, seven through 12, is going to be Jesus the Son, and then verses 13 and 14 is going to be the Holy Spirit. Okay, so three sermons right there. So before we go on, let's go ahead and really quickly look at verse one of Ephesians 1, Uh, Gabe covered this last week. But I want to just point out one thing here. We know who wrote this. Paul. Who did he write it to? The The saints. The saints of Ephesus, right? Who is a saint? Are you a saint, Angie? Pause too long. Yes, you are. Are you a saint, Joe? Hell yeah. (laughs) (laughs) I'm I'm, I'm very... um, Excited by you. Okay, how about you, John? Are you a saint? Okay, well, the amount of confidence you have, where do you think that comes from? Is it because of how good you live? No. It's because you're in Christ. A saint is someone that is set apart by God. And how are you set apart? Because of your repentance and faith in Jesus the Son. And that reflects the work of the Holy Spirit in your heart And that also reflects the providence and the sovereignty of God working in your life. So you're a saint, not because you yourself are worthy of sainthood, but you're a saint because God has made you one in Christ. And and so the next few verses is because you are a saint. But see, this is actually really important for us to grasp because a lot of times we equate sainthood to behavior. And that's cultural too, right? I mean, there's an entire... um, I mean, related, you know, religion for which sainthood is described very differently. Um, And when it's not rooted in the gospel, sainthood comes across completely differently. But if you're trusting in what Christ has done, what he's accomplished on the cross for you, then sainthood is part of that package. You're a saint because of who you are in Christ. Now, we could be faithful saints, we could be rebellious saints, we could be apathetic saints, we could be obedient saints, we could be active saints, we could be lazy saints, but it's not because primarily of your actions that you are a saint or not. It is your faith and your trust in Jesus. So you're a saint because Christ in you the hope of glory, the Bible says, right? So verse one is important because saint is who this is written to you. And if you are a Christian, if you're a follower of Jesus, if you're a disciple called to be a disciple maker, then you're a saint as well. So you should all get jerseys that, that say that. It's actually kind of cool to recognize that you're a saint. But it's also something that is a lot of times that I think when you're trying to you know, share Christ with your friends and family and you know that your life isn't perfect, which makes you normal, no matter how hard you're trying, that this badge is something we, we try to separate ourselves from but it would be like trying to separate ourselves from Christ if we're going to deny the fact that every single time the Bible says saint and a letter is written to the saints that in spirit, that's to us. Otherwise, this whole entire letter is irrelevant for us, as are really all of the letters that Paul writes to churches because churches are made of saints who have been set apart because of their faith and trust in the work of Christ. Okay. All right, so let's go on starting in verse 4. Now, the next three verses... Each verse is going to cover an aspect of how God, the Father, is worthy to be praised. He's given every spiritual blessing in the heavenly places for his saints. Okay, so I wanted the whole passage up there because I wanted us to see the relationships that the verses have with each other. But in verse 4, we're going to see God's plan. In verse 5, we're going to see the process by which his plan goes forth. And in verse 6, we're going to see the purpose of his plan. And it's these three things then that when... Understood, even as imperfectly as we understand things, draws us to a place of gratitude and thanksgiving to God the Father, not only for the temporary things and the perishable things, but for the spiritual blessings that He has given to us and for us to put our hope in those things. So let's read this together, all, all three verses together. Even as He chose us, I can't hear you. Just, 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 even as He chose us in Him before the foundation of the world, that we should be holy and blameless before Him. In love, He predestined us for adoption to Himself as sons through Jesus Christ, according to the purpose of His will, to the praise of His glorious grace with which He has blessed us in the Beloved. What is God the Father's (coughs) plan? His plan is to elect a group of people that he will work on, that he will mold, that he will shape, that he will form, that he will bring together, and that ultimately Christ will bring to heaven. Okay, so that's his plan. And we find that the beginnings of this plan is before the beginnings of all things. This was before the foundation of the world. Now, a lot of things that you're going to hear, especially from Ephesians 1 in this passage, it's going to speak to particular doctrines and particular theologies. I'm not going to use super theological words. I just want you guys to pay attention to scripture and see the relationships among the words to see and understand the concepts in these words. And I think many of the things by which you hear taught certain doctrines, they would just flow out of a clear reading of scripture. I don't have to tell you, believe this because of this system. I don't have to tell you, you know, we teach this here. You're supposed to believe that and not ask questions. Just let scripture answer itself. It becomes very clear when you see many of the relationships and many of the illustrations that are being used for (coughs) Paul to then give praise to God with his plan and his actions and his purpose. Okay, so he's electing a people which then we see are going to be holy and blameless. Okay, so he is the one that chose. What does that mean? Well, it means that This is a personal calling. So he knows who he's calling, right? He knows who he's electing. He knows that these are going to be certain people, these individuals through generations that he is setting aside. Otherwise, it's not choosing. Okay. Secondly, this is not random, haphazard or accidental because this happened before the foundation of the world. And if we believe that God knows everything, then If he did this before human history even had a chance to come into the scene, before anything was made or created, this was his will, this was his decree, then his choice of a people for himself was something that he had also decided. So here's the implication then. The implication is that it's not so much what you see here that he chose based on how good or bad certain people are. But he chose simply because he chose. Okay, there's nothing that's said here about the quality of the people. Although if you go later on to Ephesians 2, you'll find that the people, all people are described in very, very negative ways. Nobody is described in positive ways at all. They're called sons of obedience. They're called children of wrath. That's what every person has in common. But then out of all of human history, before the foundations of the world, God chose some people to be his people, to be holy and blameless. So the beauty of that here is that there's not really this room for a horizontal gazing of, you know, am I better than someone else? Was I raised just in a better situation? Am I just taught better in the home, although parents have the responsibility to disciple their children, but we don't find that as being the point of God's choosing because all this happened before human history. It's not that some people are more lovable, more kind-hearted, more easygoing, but simply that God chose. Now let's go on. In verse 5, we find here that there's a word that is used that describes the choosing, but then there's a process that he uses to connect to what it's supposed to look like for us. In verse 5, you find that it says, he predestined us for adoption to himself as sons through Christ Jesus. And so being predestined is just another way of saying being elected, being chosen. But here's the metaphor that Paul chooses to use that really helps to clarify. It's this metaphor of adoption. Do you know that adoption... Is very Christian. That adoption, especially even now in our culture where babies are being aborted, where there's lots of out of wedlock babies being born or being killed, that oftentimes it is Christians that are pushing for adoption. Now, it's not just Christians, but Christians really push for adoption and adoption ministry. And Christians are the ones that oftentimes open their hearts and their pocketbooks and their priorities and their timelines to accommodate bringing in children, whether it's foster children or adopting children. Why is because this is a biblical idea. There's this idea from the Bible, Ephesians 1 in particular, that none of us really belonged in God's household. None of us are in nature like God, as described in chapter 2. All of us are very different from a Perfectly holy, just, righteous God. We're different. We're not blood related to the Creator God. We're different. And that's why we can be called sons of disobedience and children of wrath, because we're different. God is not our Father as we are sinners. But the people He chose, He also adopted into His family. You know the beauty about adoption? The closest thing that I have to this in my life, you know, would be, you know, sponsoring World Vision children, okay? So, my family's been doing that for a long time. It's not, you know, adoption by any means, but, you know, it's it's having somebody come into, you know, our lives and, and our prayers and, and very little, you know, financial support of, of just, you know, um, helping out others. But but adoption, it, it, it's really interesting because the child is completely at the mercy of, Whoever it is that's going to adopt him or her. And at the mercy of whoever it is will provide for him or her. A child really can't choose. But an adopted parent can come in and completely take care of them and bring them in to their home. You know, legally we even see this, right? You can't just like find a kid off the street and say, that's my kid. You have to go through a process, don't you? And a lot of times a lot of the frustration comes And a lot of the costs come from how long that process takes. Right? But imagine after a year for some people, or two or three, tens of thousands of expenses, hopeful, waiting, anticipating adoptive parents to be, when they finally are given the custody of their children, when they can finally go overseas and pick up their child from the orphanage. Just this joy erupts. Just just this excitement and gratitude erupts. Because now through legal means, through a public and formal declaration, this child is ours. This is our child. Yes, they are not biologically related to to us. But if we adopted them, that is my son. That is my daughter. You know, in Roman society, this wasn't that different, except there was even a greater disparity of power in that The father in a Roman household had all the power, all the control over finances. And so for an adoption to take place, really there is no parity at all between the adoptee versus the adoptive parent. And the reason why the adoptive parent will want to bring a child into their household oftentimes is to integrate them into their home so that they're able to continue on the family line. Certainly there's love, but probably not quite in the same way as you know, we do things now in modern society. But, but it is a very real, you know what, now you're my heir. Now you're my successor. Now the inheritance goes to you. Even if we're not blood, because you're adopted into our family, everything I have is yours. Everything I have is yours. But see, that's the picture then that Paul chooses to use. That those that are being adopted, really, they couldn't choose. They, they have no business in ever making demands to be accepted into another household. But it's that there's the greatness of the benefactor, the greatness of the patron, the greatness of the parents that wants to extend their home and their inheritance and their identity to another child. That is equated to what God has done for those that he has called. That through the work of his son, you are now a part of his family where he is the father. You know, interestingly enough, does God need children? Like, like there's some kind of a need for God to be loved more or God needs to be you know, revered more. No, God has a self-esteem issue. He doesn't. So why would God ever expand his family? Why did he ever ordain to even have a family? Why did he ever decide to make a people? Well, we find that out specifically in verse 6. But certainly it's not out of need. But then how grateful then must his children be? That it's not that we fulfill God in some way, but that God is just simply that kind, that generous. His love that great, his reach that wide, so that in Christ, his household can be big and growing as we experience it in this world, and that this is actually his plan. And again, this goes back to, is there something, you know, that's necessarily beautiful about us? You know, are we just like more holy and more righteous in God's eyes? And he's like, oh, you know, you're so pretty. I want you in my home, trust in my son. I mean, we're not the Avengers, guys. Like, we're not X-Men. Like, we were born with superpowers, and someone just needs to collect us, right, and train us. We're just simple people. Like, we don't make God better. It's, it's not like, you know, God's been searching for all of these, like, amazing, gifted, you know, almost holy, they can just be Christian people, and boom, the church. No, he just calls people, and we don't know why, except that we know that he does, And we know that this was his plan and that he doesn't need us, but that he calls people to himself through Christ for some reason. And we see here, even at the end of verse five, what's the reason, according to the purpose of his will? The Christian standard Bible says this. It's the good pleasure of his will that it makes God happy to save people. that it makes God happy to grow his family, and that that was his intent before the foundation of the world, to save a group of people that then would call him father, but yet would also have one another as brothers and sisters. It's the same way in which, you know, when you read Luke 15 and read about the prodigal son, you know, what really offended people was the extent by which the father was so extravagant and self-effacing and just so nonchalant about the honor that he's supposed to have as the dad that's been betrayed by the prodigal son the dad that was you know declared worthless by the prodigal son compared to money inheritance how he ran to his son you know what motivates that it's that the return of his son brings him pleasure that that to the good purpose of his will the return of his son to the household is great. That's enough. It's not what culture thinks or what he's expected to do. And that entire story is supposed to be a parallel to who God the Father is, especially as he welcomes sinners home. So let's see verse 6 then, the purpose of why God calls and saves people for himself. To the praise of his glorious grace with which he has blessed us in the Beloved. So the context of the people in Ephesus are that there is this supreme goddess named Artemis. There is a temple erected for her. All kinds of priests, priestesses is a very influential cult that was there. You no, know, the image of Artemis is on the coins. There's a month of the year named after her. There's Olympic games that are played in her honor. She is considered the protector of the city. She is considered the guardian of the people. So, then why would people worship? People worshiped these pagan gods back in that time because of what they can get from them. They worship these gods because they wanted to manipulate the spirit world through these gods showing favor on them. And so they would pay. To, to buy certain things for offering. They would buy trinkets and, and magic spells. They would buy books and they would get all of these things that are supposed to appease their God. That was kind of like the, you know, trade off between people and pagan gods in that time. So you guys remember in Acts, you know, when the gospel was preached in Ephesus and then people, came to trust in Christ, how the merchants got really angry, right? Why? Not because they were offended by some kind of revival. They were offended because the people that used to spend all their money to buy all their stuff to please their God, they stopped spending money. And so then their economy and their finances were going down too. That was the problem, is that the Christians were interrupting this flow of, hey, I'm going to give my God this, and then my God will give me this. God was, the God of that city, or the gods of that city, was just a greater... Version of them. They were not holy and righteous. They were not perfect and powerful. They were just better versions of them that they tried to bribe and deceive and negotiate and get something by giving something. <clears throat> that sounds so different from the God that Paul's describing, doesn't it? Where every single spiritual blessing in the heavenly places belongs to those that he calls. There's no strings that you're supposed to pull. There's not something you're supposed to give so that God would look upon you with more favor. He's already given it to his people when you don't deserve it, when we don't deserve it, when we have nothing to offer him. And God blesses abundantly by calling and providing and saving a people for himself. You know, the the use, you know, the word grace reminds us of the unmerited grace favor that God's people have. We don't deserve anything from God, but yet it is the same God that blesses us so abundantly, especially with these transcendent spiritual blessings that we can bank and take all the way to heaven with us. So how should we respond to this? Well, first... I think it's important for us to, in addition to the, 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 the thanksgiving that kind of comes naturally to us. They're not bad things. We should praise God for those things. When you give thanks to God for a meal provided for you, that's not done in vain. That's not childish. If it's from the heart, you realize that the, the smallest of sustenance, the, 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 the most essential of needs, that's from God. And if you can give thanks with your heart for things like that, that pleases God. So it's not to say that the things that we normally give thanks for, the things that are tangible or things that are, you know, quantifiable, that those are not important anymore. They are. But let's not stop there. Let's not only look at our lives from the perspective of our circumstances and the haves versus the have nots and the more successful versus the less successful and and the more popular versus the less popular or, or the more I don't know, influence versus the less influence. Let's not only look at our lives and approach thanksgiving from an earthly, limited perspective. Let's really take the time to recognize the blessings that we have in Christ. What are the things that he is doing in your heart, in your life, to grow your faith? What are the challenges that he's presenting to you so that through rubbing against them and sharpening your life through them, that you will grow and bear the fruit of the Spirit. See, that, that actually lets us start giving thanks to God and to praise God for the blessings that come in trial and suffering. And so many of us, we don't even begin to go there. We think that trials and suffering is equivalent to God not having favor on us. Well, that would make us very similar to the big pagan worshipers of that day. That if something bad is happening, then that God of that city is mad at us, or we didn't give enough, or he likes someone more. God is not capricious and play favorites like that. That's not what he does. He's already given every heavenly blessing to his people. So we have access and we have what is the most important. So maybe it helps for us just on a regular basis. To take the time to think and recognize, hey, what are the spiritual blessings that God has given to me, to my family, to my community here at Turf, to my church here at FCBC Walnut, to the people that I'm trying to reach in my school. You know, I was um, you know, talking to, to JC a little bit before uh, Turf started and I just asked her you a know, simple question. Hey, do you guys still meet up at Cal Poly and kind of hang out for lunch whatever? And she's like, yeah, we do. You know, because there's that hour. and So on one hand, you can think, okay, well, that's kind of nice to have people to eat lunch with. But if you start thinking and recognizing spiritual blessings, you realize that if the same God is moving to shape and to build up all those who are in Christ, who are in Cal Poly, and you have each other, that's a spiritual blessing. Because that is something that's going to help you grow and have community and depth of friendship. And something that will help you to endure in an increasingly hostile cultural environment, also known as school. That's a spiritual blessing. It's not just, oh, I have someone to eat lunch with. I'm not alone. All those things are to be worthy of praise. But we got to start thinking, okay, what are the things that I can give thanks to God for in my life that maybe are not so apparent? But really, the direct source of blessing is God because he loves me. He loves me so much that I'm a child in this household through Christ and he's not going to leave me abandoned. He's looking after me. And then it's for then those things amongst other things that you give thanks. Let's not take for granted how important it is to give thanks. You know, I have um, you know, this belief that the reason why sometimes certain cyclical trials happen to us is because when we go through it and it's done, our heart of thanksgiving goes away with it. And I think God wants us to be dependent on Him and God wants us to be grateful all the time because that's who He presents Himself to be. And so then the trials will come back. So why? We have to cry out to people, to Him, and then He has to rescue us. And then we can give thanks again, which... A lot of times we forget again. So it helps for us to learn to give thanks. There's nothing too small to give thanks for. There's nothing too insignificant to give thanks for. And the more we do it, the more we become grateful people. So that's why the, the stepping stones are stuff like, you know, thanking God for food. It's because it's so simple. and It's because you eat three times a day and sometimes more. But then that's supposed to actually help us give thanks for greater things and give thanks for more difficult things and give thanks for, you know, uh, things that we don't see immediate benefits or fruit from, but that we just know and trust that God is working in to be able to give thanks for those things. How do you know when you're thankful is when you're not bitter. When you're bitter, you're not too thankful. But if you can go through the circumstances of life and not be bitter. That's a, that's a good limit test that you're not that you're thankful, otherwise, if you're bitter, you're not being thankful at all because you're wishing for something that you don't have or you're wishing something could be different or you're wishing that so and so you know could have acted differently or something all right, and finally, you know you're, you're called to live out there in your calling because God saved the people, he called them, he changed them, he's forming them to be holy and blameless. You guys have heard the saying, an apple doesn't fall far from the tree, right? I know, I feel so old. Maybe half of you don't even know that one. Okay, so an apple doesn't fall far from the tree. The idea is because an apple is from the tree. So, you know, the same kind, same thing. Yes, the, the apple on your iPad. That's exactly what I'm talking about. Okay, apples does not fall far from the tree. So, why does God save a people to make them holy and blameless? Because God is holy and blameless. And so, if we are His children... This entire earthly life is where we're being prepared for our ultimate home, where we get to be a part of the big family powwow, right? Well, we'll be holy and blameless then. So this life prepares us for who and what we were saved to be. So that's what the earthly life is like. But see, if we come from the different places and the struggles and sins, especially if there's been traumatic things that's happened to us. And I say this not because it's all happened to you, but I say this because the people that you're, wanting to disciple and share Christ with, many of them have had traumatic things happen to them. Okay? But if we don't see it from that point of view of, you know what? All this stuff happens so that God in saving us will not abandon us and he's forming us so that he could prepare us for our eternal everlasting home where our holy and blameless father with his holy and blameless son, with the holy and blameless spirit will welcome us into his presence forever. This earthly life and its trials and its junk and its inconveniences, it prepares us for that. And what's the only thing that will last between now and when we meet Jesus is really our faith in God. God is there, but it's whether we're going to actually trust him and we're actually going to follow him and we're actually going to depend on him. If we're going to live out our calling to be people that he is working on. To be disciple makers, to be people that will become holy and blameless. So it helps for us to take the time regularly to recognize in deeper ways the blessings of God in our lives. It doesn't eliminate the ordinary things, but it certainly can add on top to those things when we start thinking spiritual blessings and ways in which God is shaping our character in ways in which God is stretching us to be more like Jesus, in ways in which we can have already confidence and identity of who we are because we are ultimately in Christ and not in what other people say that we are or value us to be. And then we should respond in thanksgiving, in tangible ways, in sacrificial ways, in personal ways, and then we should live out our calling to be what you were saved to be eventually anyway holy and blameless. Now, we're going to fall along the way, and that's why we have each other. We're going to make mistakes. We're going to sin against each other. But that's the work of God as well in shaping us to be more like His Son, Jesus. So then those two questions are questions that you're welcome to go off of uh, when you go back to your community groups. One is maybe share a spiritual blessing this time around, a spiritual one. And the second one is what is your next step in fulfilling your calling in Christ? Incidentally, that's where it ties into even what we're doing this weekend as a church. That this weekend, when we have our ministry fair, it's to expand and, and you know, kind of connect our whole congregation to a variety of communion groups and of ministries that they could consider and be a part of. Not all of them, but maybe just one, to take the next step in fulfilling their calling as people that God has set apart to become holy and blameless as part of a church family. So that's what ministry fair is all about, and I want to encourage all of you guys to be there. Although many of you guys will, because you're helping serve food. And so strategically, turf is actually like, you're wanted and needed, because people want and need food. And so they'll look to you and go, hey, who are these college students that I've never seen serve food before? Okay, well, hey guys, and you guys should just smile, hello, we're from Turf. you know, here you go, give me your money, have some food. Um, and that's good enough. If they have questions, Friday night, 7.30, we meet here. What do we do? Gather as God's people to worship him and to encourage each other. And we're a part of God's family that is building us up to be disciple makers in this world. There's a lot of other things too, but so much of it begins with us recognizing that the blessings that we have is not just the blessings people say that we have. or the blessings that people are customly giving thanks and credit to God for. It's not one of those like slogans or like you know one of those like t-shirts that just says blessed because your life is good. That's not the kind of thing that Paul is talking about here. And we can all grow in that. And I, I actually think for you guys who are in college, um, this is the time in which it will all kind of hit home for you. Because once you're done with college and you set off into young adulthood, you're going to have a framework of what you consider to be worthy of praise and worthy of pursuit and other things that you think are not as important and not worthy of pursuit coming out of college you're going to pursue stuff so now's the time to remember that the one from whom all blessings flow is also the god that gives every spiritual blessing in the heavenly places to his people let's pray and then we'll go back to oh then we should have do you have a response song it's okay if you don't we can go back to our groups. So after this, let's go to our groups. Okay? Maybe we'll sing a little chorus, just acapella. Father, we thank you so much for uh, this evening. Thank you, Lord, for your word and for reminding us, God, that you are beyond our personal and corporate ability to praise you. Father, you are so deserving of every accolade from our hearts, every act of humility and adoration that we can summon. Father, because you're a God that, that gave when we didn't even know what was good for us. You're a God that was generous when we have nothing to give back to you. You are a God that, that is setting aside a people for yourself, not because you need a self-esteem boost, but Father, you're setting aside people for yourself because you know Lord, that your people has the image of God in us. We're image bearers and we can only be fully satisfied by being reconciled to you. So we thank you, Lord, for this room, for those of us who are followers of Jesus and that not only do we have a perfect heavenly father, but we also have new brothers and sisters too. And Lord, we pray, Father, that we will continue, Lord, to look to you, not just for limited Perishable blessings. But Father, that we would just grow in gratitude and and give thanks to you for everything. Especially the spiritual blessings that we have in Christ. We then pray, Lord, that you would help us, Lord, to encourage one another to take the next step in following Jesus. Because you called us and you saved us so that we would be holy and blameless. Help, Help that, Lord, to be our goal and our hope. And we thank you, Lord, that even when we fail, God, that we can always look to you And, Lord, that you are in the business of transforming broken vessels and using them for your glory and for your purpose. So we thank you, God, for your kindness to us. In Jesus' name I pray. Amen. Amen.